Will all senators now stand or remain standing and raise their right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This is a transition week for impeachment. The House voted to move impeachment over to the Senate. It named its impeachment managers. We now know more about the president's defense team in the Senate trial. We know a little bit more about what the Senate trial itself will look like. So I'm going to talk with Andrew Prokop about all of that. But then I I want to have a bigger conversation, too, about what it means for the Senate to reconstitute itself for impeachment, because I think people don't know that much about this part of the constitutional process. But during this period, we're not just looking at impeachment in the well of the Senate the way you would look at legislation. The Senate does not work normally. And so we'll have a constitutional expert, Jeffrey Toulis, on to talk about that. But let's begin with the news of the week and Andrew Prokop. Andrew Prokop, knower of all things impeachment related. Welcome back. Glad to be back. So where are we? Um, the House has voted. We know something about impeachment managers. Just what what is happening in the process right now? What is advanced since we last spoke? So the House passed the baton. They transmitted the articles of impeachment to the Senate. They officially named their team of seven impeachment managers who will be the prosecutors, essentially making the case on the Senate floor against Trump. I don't think the lineup is all that interesting, really. Uh, It's led by Adam Schiff, as expected. Jerry Nadler is also there. Zoe Lofgren, former Impeachment Explained guest. Oh, yes, yes. Well, well, she's interesting because, you know, as she explained on this podcast, she's been involved in the Nixon impeachment as a staffer on the Judiciary Committee and um, the the Clinton impeachment as as a member of the committee. But why seven? That seems like a lot of people. Well, it's much less than House Republicans had in 1999 for Clinton's impeachment. They picked 13 people. So this is a bit of a smaller roster and also the makeup of the roster. It's kind of people who are close to leadership and people who are not so much partisan bomb throwers. And uh, also revealing to me is that Pelosi did not choose Justin Amash, the independent from Michigan, who who some moderate Democrats wanted on the team to, to kind of make it seem less partisan. But it's kind of a conservative slate of choices. Uh, it's probably going to be a sober team trying to make a, a case that doesn't get too far in over their skis. And then where are we in the Senate? So the Senate seems to be moving forward, but some of the key questions remain unresolved. Um, There's been oath taking already. We're actually going to talk in the B Block today about the special oath that senators take to be part of this. But that's what's happened in the House. Um, How is the Senate preparing right now? So on Thursday, things officially started when uh, they received the articles of impeachment from the House. Then they called in Chief Justice John Roberts, who rather unusually is now presiding over this whole thing in the Senate. And uh, and then they had the senators take the oath and they um, 
approved a bunch of unanimous consent requests with various uh, procedural matters about the trial. These are things that have been worked out by McConnell and Schumer behind the scenes, but it's not really the most controversial issues they have to determine, which is the plan, the overall structure for the first phase of the trial. So that is what is first on the agenda when the Senate comes back on Tuesday. They will have to vote on this plan for the opening phase of the trial. McConnell has said he's going to follow the structure of Bill Clinton's trial in 1999, which was you had opening arguments from both sides, and then you had a questioning period where senators submit written questions to either side and the chief justice reads them out and uh, they have to get answers. And only then will they make a decision on whether to call witnesses or subpoena more documents. So that's the McConnell proposal. He, We haven't seen it yet, so there are a lot of details we still don't know. But um, he claims to have the Republican votes locked down to pass this without any Democratic support. And we'll also expect a, a vote on some Democratic proposals, like Schumer has signaled he's going to force a vote very early on on uh, on calling witnesses. But, you know, the witness question is not going to be resolved on Tuesday. Republicans are going to punt it until later in the trial. And then finally, after that opening volley of votes, the opening arguments will begin and we'll see the House impeachment managers make their case. That'll probably take a few days. And then Trump's team will make their case. So speaking of Trump's defense, who's on his team? So the team is led by White House counsel Pat Cipollone, Trump's personal lawyer who's been around for him throughout his presidency. Jay Sekulow is also on the team, uh, a few other staffers from the White House counsel's office. But on Friday, there were reports that, in fact, Trump was adding some very big names Uh, Former independent counsel Ken Starr, who, of course, pursued the case that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. Robert Ray, who succeeded Starr as independent counsel in that role. And also Alan Dershowitz, who um, has obviously famous celebrity lawyer, defended O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, has been a bit of a controversial figure of late, but has been a staunch defender of Trump on the impeachment topic on Fox News. There there is something, if you were writing this as a dystopic novel to show what would happen in America this polarized and where the Republican Party is like driven itself into this particular corner, to put Alan Dershowitz, who defended Jeffrey Epstein, and Ken Starr, who, who also defended Jeffrey Epstein. Who also defended Epstein, but also was the special counsel at prosecuting against uh, President Clinton. To just show how much the partisanship of this can invert everything, you just it would it would seem like too heavy handed in the plotting to like to bring these characters back in this particular way would just seem like you were making too aggressive a point about how much people don't care about anything, but which side is ultimately being supported. Yeah. And for Trump, I think it's simple. He wants people who are famous, people who are stars. And White House counsel Pat Cipollone didn't have a lot of TV experience. And he's watched Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz go on TV and defend him all the time. So I I think that's what he wanted. He wanted star power. It seems that there's at least some movement among some Senate Republicans in the direction of witnesses. Can you talk a bit about whether or not that's been a united front or whether or not we're really seeing the possibility that we're going to get uh, some at least more information gathering during the Senate trial? Yeah, there have been some interesting signals coming out um, pretty much since the standoff with 
Pelosi ended. Uh, McConnell really didn't want to budge there, and he kept his Republicans united behind him. But since then, there have been some signals that McConnell may be concerned with managing this trial in a way that tries to provide cover for or protect his purple state Senate Republicans, many of whom are on the ballot in November. And I think foremost among those signals is um, the topic of a motion to dismiss. So McConnell keeps saying he's following the precedent of the Clinton trial in 1999. But one thing that happened in that trial was that after everything we just talked about, the opening arguments and the questioning, the Senate voted on a motion to dismiss the charges, which would have ended the trial right there, thrown out the charges. And McConnell and Senate Republicans are signaling that they are not going to do this this time. And the explanation that's being offered to reporters is that they don't have the votes to dismiss the charges. And they don't see the point of holding a vote on a motion to dismiss and then losing it because all it would do would embarrass their members, uh, put their moderates in a tough position and so on. So this is a signal that like the Republican senators, at least in appearance, are not unified around a strategy of throw these impeachment articles in the garbage right away. The purple staters and the people who have more of uh, independent brands like Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, uh, they want to make this thing look serious. They don't want to be seen as taking this lightly. And McConnell, there's a very interesting CNN report where um, McConnell claimed to just not have the votes for this motion to dismiss, which is something that Trump wants. Trump wants the motion to dismiss. He wants this done with. But McConnell is saying, oh, we shouldn't do this. We don't have the votes. And the story also claimed that McConnell actually doesn't even think a motion to dismiss would be a good idea politically. So this shows that he has to balance the imperative of protecting Trump's political interests with also protecting his Republican Senate majority and not making his purple state and um, independent members look like total hacks throughout this thing. Speaking of witnesses, Lev Parnas, who is one of Giuliani's associates, or you might want to call him bagmen during this, uh, seems to have flipped and gave a pretty big interview this week to Rachel Maddow. Can you talk a bit about who Parnas is and what we did learn from that interview, or at least maybe learned from that interview? Yeah, so Parnas was Rudy Giuliani's fixer, essentially, in this Ukrainian caper, working with a colleague of his, Igor Fruman. He flew around with Rudy. He went to Ukraine uh, without Rudy and met with a bunch of Ukrainian officials, tried to open doors, make contacts. And the goal was to deliver this dirt on Biden and these various other um, matters that Trump was interested in, like um, you know, uh, investigating Ukrainian interference in 2016 and and stuff that could help Manafort potentially. Parnas was was helping to try to make this all happen, and he was um, he describes himself as really part of a team with Rudy Giuliani, with a pair of other conservative lawyers who were helping uh, this whole caper. And so what happened is that in October. 
he was suddenly arrested with Fruman while they were about to fly out of the country. And uh, they were charged with campaign finance violations. So, so basically, they had donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republicans back in 2018 to buy this access to people like Giuliani. And the prosecutors alleged that they made false disclosures about those donations and where the money was coming from and so on. So Parnas says that he was kind of treated by Trump's legal team at that point. Um, He got the signal that he was expected to fall on his sword, and uh, he said he didn't want to do that. And so he appears to be, you know, this is very similar to the Michael Cohen situation, where a guy who was an associate of Trump or people around Trump, uh, a, a kind of shady, unreliable character, he flips, he claims to know a lot of stuff, but he clearly also has his own motivations. He's not the most honest guy in the world from his track record. And uh, he seems to be either trying to get Congress to give him immunity in exchange for testimony in the trial or for prosecutors to make some kind of deal with him, neither of which seem particularly likely at this point. But when it comes to the interview with Maddow, I actually think what was more informative this week were the hundreds of pages of documents and text messages from Parnas that uh, he and his legal team, uh, this was stuff seized from prosecutors in his case, and he decided to make an offer to just turn this over to the House impeachment investigators. And that was just turned over this week. The House posted them publicly, and they are fascinating reading. They show Parnas in contact with Rudy Giuliani, with um, uh, conservative lawyer Victoria Tensing, with all these Ukrainian officials trying to get the ambassador fired, uh, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch trying to please these Ukrainian officials, trying to get this dirt. The prosecutor general of Ukraine at the time refers to um, he directly makes a quid pro quo where he says that if you don't make a decision about Madam uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch, you are bringing into question all my allegations, including about B, seemingly Biden or Burisma, which essentially mean the same thing. So overall, bigger picture, I think what this tells us is that There's really a lot of this story that we still don't know, that we haven't seen the documents for, in part because the Trump administration has been so successful at stonewalling um, any turnover of documents. We got all those messages from Kurt Volker last year that talked a lot about what State Department officials involved in Ukraine were doing. But there are big gaps in the rest of the story. And these messages really shed light on what was going on on the Giuliani side, on the shady attempts to get Ukrainian dirt side. And and I think they look very bad. Andrew Brokop, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Joining me next is Jeffrey Toulis, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas, Austin. He is a constitutional expert. He's uh, got a ton of books on the Constitution, including the presidency and the constitutional order, the constitutional presidency, the limits of constitutional democracy and the rhetorical presidency. And he's been making, uh, I think, some of the most specific arguments and offering some of the most specific analysis about what it means for the Senate to become an impeachment body. He joins me next. Jeffrey Tulis, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So why did the founders choose a Senate of all places as the place to hold their impeachment trials? Why not, for instance, the Supreme Court? Well, they actually gave thought to that. According to Hamilton, the motivation was 
that the kinds of crimes they were talking about, political crimes, would divide the polity almost naturally, and so that there would be a problem for the legitimacy of the Supreme Court if, in fact, it was given to them to to try the case. And they thought that the Senate actually had certain advantages to other institutions because it was a sort of longer-term body than the House. It had longer terms and a longer-term perspective on politics. And they thought if they could combine that set of attributes with bringing the Chief Justice over, and in this part is missed by most citizens today, recomposing the body. So it's the same people. They meet in the same room, but their offices change completely. So they no longer have a majority, minority leader, committee chairs, and all that sort of thing. The presiding officer is the chief justice. And by the Constitution's own mandate, they have to take a new oath in addition to their original oath of office to be senators. They take this new oath to be a kind of combination of a judge and juror in an impeachment trial. So that that whole combination of factors is designed to create actually a new institution. Tell me about that different oath. What is it? So the oath, the Constitution simply specifies that there be such a new oath. The Senate itself wrote it, I think, prior to the Andrew Johnson impeachment, but possibly before that, because there were judicial impeachments before Johnson's presidential impeachment. And it asked the senators to pledge to do impartial justice. That doesn't seem to be how a lot of senators right now are reading it. Lindsey Graham said to on CBS's Face the Nation, I have clearly made up my mind. I'm not trying to hide the fact that I have disdain for the accusations in the process, so I don't need any witnesses. So it sounds a little bit odd that he's going to take an oath to be an impartial part of this and then come in saying he has disdain for the witnesses. Exactly. He's already pledged to violate it. And McConnell has been as and or even more explicit in his public claim that he is going to ignore the oath. Harvard law professor Lawrence Lessig uh, made an interesting point just on this serious problem, which is that you have senators actually pledging not to follow an oath such that if they do take the oath, they could be committing perjury. This is really actually very interesting because it's certainly the case over the course of American political history that a lot of senators didn't necessarily live up to their oath. But there's a big difference between not living up to your oath and pledging in advance not even to care about the oath. So Lessig and others are suggesting that one of the first moves in the Senate trial should be for some senator because any senator can raise a motion or possibly the House managers to ask the chief justice to disqualify McConnell on the grounds that he's pledged not to take the oath. That, of course, would be challenged by other senators. uh, And if they do challenge it, it would be left to the Senate as a whole by majority vote to decide what the decision should be on that. But as Lessig argues, that would be an actually important moment of civic education for the country to debate what it actually means to take this oath and what it means to do impartial justice in a circumstance like this. You mentioned there that the trial will be presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. What is his role here? What does he actually do? What does he actually have power over? Well, it's pretty much up to him. According to both the Constitution and the rules that the Senate have established for themselves, He can make rulings with respect to the relevance of evidence, to procedures, to whether or not they're following the rules they've actually set for themselves. 
And all of those decisions could be overruled by a majority of the Senate. But he's empowered to make those initial rulings. And that's a tremendous power precisely because of his stature as a uh, justice and uh, his intelligence and his ability possibly to offer a rationale for his rulings. I know in one of your earlier podcasts, you had Brenda Wineapple on who gave a great account of the Johnson Andrew Johnson impeachment, that chief justice was very actively engaged in trying to decide things like the relevance of witnesses and evidence and so forth. And was uh, there was some pushback from the Senate on that. Chief Justice Rehnquist, who presided over the Clinton trial, decided to take a much more ceremonial role and try to do as little uh, as possible. And a lot of people are predicting that that's what uh, Roberts would do, but he doesn't have to do that. And he could be urged to actually take more active role by the participants in the trial themselves. And, and so just to ground that in specifics, when, when you talk about, for instance, the question of relevance of witnesses, it has been the way the public discussion has framed this is that it is up to Mitch McConnell how many witnesses are called is that true or is that something John Roberts has a has a role in deciding? Uh, like how how far does his power stretch there? Part of the complication is that the role of McConnell and Schumer, for that matter, has changed over the last day or so. So over the last three weeks or a month, they were still the majority and minority leaders, and they were proposing to sort of set up rules in advance for the trial. Uh, and so they were in a kind of ambiguous status because they were supposed to be looking forward to a trial, but they still had their their old rules. And he was trying to model that process on the way that the Clinton trial was set up in which rules were agreed to ahead of time, by the way, unanimously by an agreement between the majority and minority uh, leaders. Of course, in that situation, they had a very, very full record. And so the question of witnesses wasn't really as vital. But in this case, it isn't up to, to McConnell at all. And in fact, that's why there has been a serious movement to get at least four, and there appear to be at least four Republican senators willing to join with Democrats in voting for some reasonable number of, of witnesses on both sides to be called uh, during the trial. And, and so I think this is actually a very important point to, to stop for a minute, because I think one of the very hard things about getting yourself mentally into the space of a Senate impeachment trial is the intuitive way to think about it, is that the Senate is going to run an impeachment trial the way the Senate runs legislative debates, which is to say it will be the Senate. The argument you make and that other constitutional scholars make is that you're looking at a recomposition of the body into something else with different rules. People who currently hold positions of great power will not hold the positions of great power anymore. Can you talk about what it means for the Senate to reconvene itself as this impeachment trial? How does it differ from the way we think of the Senate running day to day now? Right. So what I'm describing is what you might say is the constitutional picture of the way the Senate is supposed to operate. That doesn't mean that it actually is going to operate that way, because so many senators have actually disavowed this picture. So, for example, both Senator Cruz and Senator McConnell have said, because the senators are not jurors in all the senses that a juror would be in an ordinary criminal trial, for example, McConnell says they all would be disqualified because they know the parties and so forth. And Senator Cruz said that they're not being sequestered as they might be in a criminal trial, that because the analogy is not tight, 
they are not in any sense jurors or judges and therefore are not need not be uh, impartial in the way that we think they the, the jurors should the problem with that of course is all analogies are imperfect uh an analogy suggests that one entity is similar in some respects and not in others. Otherwise, it would be an identity. So this is a new kind of trial. It's not, it's not a, a criminal trial. It's a political trial. Uh, we know it's not a criminal trial because should one of the articles of impeachment be for an ordinary crime, which they aren't in this particular case, but were, for example, in the Clinton case on perjury, that president could be charged and tried in an ordinary proceeding were they to be impeached and removed from office without violating the principle of double jeopardy. So we know that this is a different kind of trial. But what Republican senators have tried to conclude from that is that there therefore is no obligation for any understanding of judging, jurying, or impartiality because it isn't identical to a criminal proceeding. As I understand the argument Hamilton makes in, in that key Federalist paper and the things that were said early in the, the nation's history about impeachment, the idea is that senators will understand themselves as having a role different from their typical role arguing for their specific politics and their specific constituency and see themselves as having a constitutional duty, a duty to the system as a whole, a duty that's transpartisan, at least for a period of time. And it always strikes me as both telling and depressing that so many people, Ted Cruz being a good example of this, who understand their primary political commitment or would say their primary political commitment is to constitutional conservatism, that their conservatism is about right, right. the preservation of the Constitution, have so rapidly denied having any constitutional responsibility here whatsoever, and particularly on the basis of such sort of <laughs> what strike me as weak high school debater tactics. Exactly. And I think your last podcast in this series, you ended with a, what I would call a, a, a reflection on constitutional decay. And that's exactly what this is evidence of. Because in the Federalist that you were uh, referring to, the thought was that senators should position themselves so as to, as to actually be able to judge the claims of the House on the one hand and the defenders of the president on the other. So that means that at a minimum, impartiality requires that senators not coordinate with either entity. So Speaker Pelosi shouldn't be coordinating with Schumer and, uh, and the president's uh, team should not be helping design the strategy as they have openly said they are doing with McConnell. The only thing that can be said that makes it not quite symmetrical is that Pelosi and Schumer have tried to fashion their coordination as an effort to get a fair trial rather than to get a particular verdict, whereas uh, McConnell has been quite you know, open about saying that he's coordinating to get a predetermined verdict with the White House. And that's just clearly anti-constitutional. One of the questions that I feel like I don't fully understand even now is that when the trial begins, and it appears it'll begin without some of these crucial issues even yet being decided, in the normal day-to-day -day Senate functioning, Mitch McConnell has tremendous control over what comes to the floor. He has that control in a formal rules-oriented way, not just because he's the leader of his faction, but because like, he actually has uh, points of, of leverage. Right. Does he have that here? What is, what is McConnell 
during the course of a trial? Is he simply influential among the senators who see him informally as a leader? Does he actually have power? He has absolutely no formal power, more than any other senator sitting on that floor. Now, as you intimated, the senators, particularly the GOP, have become so accustomed to him being their leader and are also looking forward to him being their leader again very soon that they may be socialized into behaving as if they need to follow his directions and his directives. But as a formal matter and as a constitutional matter, he simply doesn't have any any role different than their own. So any senator can raise a motion. They don't have to go through him. He doesn't clear anything. He shouldn't actually be coordinating. They've actually developed, Senate has developed for itself rules that for a large portion of the trial, they're not even allowed to talk to each other. They're supposed to sit there silently and listen to the litigants uh, present their cases. And they they subsequently have mo- periods in which they can deliberate. But when they're listening to the case, they're not supposed to be, you know, conversing and all that. So the whole thing is designed to illustrate a process that McConnell has actually eschewed. Um, I mean, he's actually described what's about to happen as if it's supposed to be the Senate as he normally uh, runs it. Let's talk a bit about how this has worked in the past. You mentioned that the Clinton impeachment trial, the rules that governed it were brought in under unanimous consent. Right. How did the Clinton trial work? Uh, and, and what is there in that precedent or any of the other precedents that is relevant here? You know, part of the issue in any impeachment is that it takes place under, you might say, the watchful auspices of the American people. So the senators are, while they shouldn't be just tethered to public opinion, they shouldn't be ignorant of it either. And so um, there is a tension to how the trial will be read and understood by ordinary citizens. And so in the Clinton trial, even though everybody knew the evidence, The House managers wanted to make that evidence more powerful by bringing some of the witnesses that they'd already heard into the trial itself. And so they had a sort of pre-debate about that. And because part of the issue was, or the centerpiece of the issue was uh, uh, Bill Clinton's sexual conduct, it was sort of awkward on how Monica Lewinsky should be presented as a witness. And so they actually came to an agreement between everybody that They would read into the record her deposition testimony, and uh, they would take a deposition in private rather than having her sort of in a televised spectacle. So there was a kind of deliberation about what dignity required, but at the same time, what the managers thought they needed in order to make their case vivid for the American people. When you get to the issue of witnesses, I've heard two primary ideas among Republicans that that I want to run by you. So one version of the approach to witnesses, I think sort of most famously came from Marco Rubio, who tweeted the Senate has no duty to consider any additional evidence besides that collected by the House. Um, You've heard something very similar from Susan Collins, um, which imply refusing to call new witnesses, even though we know that there are relevant witnesses who are open to testifying and potentially have usable information like John Bolton. Rubio said in response to this that the Senate's role is simply to consider what the House already had. And so the fact that, say, Bolton and others did not want to testify before the House is irrelevant. How do you think about that constitutionally? Is it the Senate's role to think about information, new information? Absolutely. And I, I would put it the other way. Where does Rubio get that proposition from? 
In other words, if the analogy, loose though it is, is real, that the House is more or less like a grand jury and the Senate is more or less like a trial, it's always the case in trial that witnesses are brought forward and new evidence that is uncovered is shared and so forth. And in this particular case, the whole second article is obstruction of justice uh, against a president refusing to provide documents and witnesses. In an impeachment proceeding in which the Congress's claims against all presidential privileges are by far their strongest and are generally thought to be prevailing. I mean, it's, it's a kind of irony here that it's not just that they had an opportunity to make their case and just didn't do it. It's that they were precluded from making the case. But in the Senate, if in fact the Senate acts as a body rather than as two parties, it can easily compel the witnesses that they need. And then everybody could decide for themselves whether they have evidence relevant to make a judgment on the charges. And then there's also been an argument from some Republicans like Senator Rand Paul that goes in the opposite direction. Sure, let's call witnesses, but let's use them to sort of turn the impeachment trial not on President Trump's conduct, but on Joe Biden's or Hunter Biden's. Um, Paul, for instance, said he wants to call Hunter Biden as a witness, and a lot of Democrats feel that that's immaterial. How do you think about that argument? My view is that you should be generous initially on the witnesses anybody wants to call, but then have whatever debate might be reasonable about the relevance of those witnesses. So were they to call Hunter Biden, there is going to be objections by Democratic senators that they're not relevant to the case at hand. And they would, the chief justice, if he were an active chief justice, would make a determination and whether he made a determination or not, the senators might decide that they should make the determination. And you would have a debate about that. I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I, I would be, even though I don't think Hunter Biden is actually relevant, and I think the argu the winning argument is on the Democratic side on that one, and objectively speaking, I actually would be very, very generous to the president in at least initially proposing the kind of defense that he wants to make. Some worry that this would turn the the Senate into something of a circus, but it seems to me that part of that so-called circus is what the American people will have to will have to witness. There are really two reasons to have a trial like this. One is to potentially remove the president through a conviction, but the other is as a form of civic education, both about the Constitution and the presidency, but also as a way of uh, a kind of prelude to the upcoming election. So you, you can imagine a number of senators saying, you know, I think a lot of bad things were done here, but it's so close to the election, I'm willing to let the people decide the fate of the president. Anyway, for all those reasons, uh, to have everything sort of laid out on the table and argued about and discussed whether it was relevant or not seems to me perfectly, perfectly fine. You've written that it's not only Donald Trump who's on trial, but that our, quote, political culture is on trial at this hearing. What, what do you mean by that? Well... I mean, something similar to what you said at the end of your last podcast, whether in fact this system of separation of powers, which includes not just the relationship of the office holders to their institutions, but uh, their accountability to the people and therefore the people's ability to hold them accountable, all that is on trial now. Whether that works uh, is what is really in question here, because for starters, it's really hard to think of an article that is, is more apt for an impeachment proceeding than what this president is being 
charged with. I mean, it's actually the paradigm case used in the Federalist Papers. I don't actually think it's the worst possible offense a president could commit. I actually think some of the other things that Trump is not being charged for that are are captured in his 11,000 tweets that the New York Times analyzed uh, a month ago or so, and some of the ill effects of those behaviors, those, those rhetorical moves, are impeachable. And were, by the way, the, the 10th article of impeachment for Andrew Johnson for rhetoric that was very similar, but nowhere near as bad because it didn't have the Orwellian dimensions that Trump's rhetoric has. But it was, you know, attacking opponents and uh, abusive language and all that sort of stuff. Those strike me as raw demagoguery and and the thing that the founders actually feared most as most serious. But what they thought was the sort of paradigm case was the idea that a president would actually coordinate with a foreign power to do something like affect an election. And that's why you need impeachment, because if it's no attempt to affect an election, why would you turn to the election to resolve it if, in fact, the president is attempting to use the power to affect the election. So impeachment has to be that process that is designed to, you might say, protect the electoral process. So if people say, well, this is just not, you know, this is a waste of time. I'd rather be talking about health care or I'd rather be talking about bread and butter issues and so forth. We've got a serious problem in, the, in political culture that we're not sort of awakened to the seriousness of the breakdown of our constitutional order. Uh, I like the term you used a couple of minutes ago, constitutional decay. And I want to riff on it for, for one second here at the end, which is when I go back to those early papers and writings on how impeachment is supposed to work and the optimistic but I think reasonable view of why they put it in the Senate, how the founders hoped the Senate would act. I think we now know that it doesn't work that way, right. particularly in an age of very strong, very polarized political parties cooperating across branches. It's just not a functional picture of how impeachment can work. And so something that occurs to me often is that people seem to have the view that a reverence for the founders and, appreci and an appreciation for the wisdom they had means leaving their structure of government untouched. When it often seems to me that if you take their insights seriously and you believe in what they were trying to build, you often have to overhaul the system of government so it accords with the spirit of what they were trying to achieve as opposed to the experimental letter of how they tried at the founding of the country to achieve it. That if you want impeachment to work the way Alexander Hamilton and others said it should work, Obviously, what we are doing now, having it um, operate as part of a partisan political process inside a partisan political institution, um, is non-functional. And so to me, one of the, the, the great lessons or questions raised by this whole process is if people believe that the founders were right that we need an impeachment process, then perhaps we need to rethink how it works and where it's located because we don't have one in the sense that they wanted one. We do not have a Senate that is going to reconstitute itself into something into something functionally like a jury and judges impartially. Now, maybe you want to say they were wrong and we don't need that and we never needed it. But I don't see anybody making that case either. We seem to have accepted in some very strange way that we should have what they said we should have, that we don't have and don't need to have what they said we should have. And we're just going to leave it like that. Well, I, I agree with with the thrust of what you say, which is that constitutional thinking and emulating the founders' way of sort of designing a polity is different than trying to literally 
be faithful to some particular set of institutions that they created. And I absolutely agree with the thrust of, of, of where you're going with that. It's just that this problem is a lot bigger than the issue of Donald Trump because, um, and most citizens don't realize this, but impeachment is actually woven in to the separation of powers system much more profoundly than with respect to the issue of just these kinds of crimes. It's mentioned in six different places of the Constitution and in every major article of the three major branches. And so one could say that a symptom of the decay that I referred to is that something people regard as a good thing about American politics is actually a bad thing. People think it's good that we've never actually used impeachment for presidents. Came close with, with Nixon, of course, but we've never really used it, and it's been very, very rare. I actually think that's a symptom of a problem because what impeachment is, it's the end of a long story in which there is a tug and haul between the powers of the president and Congress, with the president justifiably being given certain advantages at the outset of a policy process or at the beginning of a war and so forth, and with Congress having retrospective advantages as it judges presidential conduct. And in between those things are all these other congressional tools, such as compelling information and holding hearings and oversight and all that, as well as passing its own legislation uh, to constrain presidents and so forth. And as you know, a lot of people think that over time the presidency has become more so-called imperial. But in fact, what's happened is that the Congress has become more abdicating. Um, and the linchpin of that is the breakdown of, uh, of impeachment as a really viable uh, institutional mechanism because it makes powerful all the other subsidiary mechanisms. Because if you knew you could be impeached, you wouldn't be so blithe about not giving uh, information, for example, to Congress, because that could itself become a subject of impeachment if it were a viable tool. So back of all this is a breakdown between ambitions of individual office holders and their institutional duties. That's what we had in the 19th century, where despite partisanship, despite, by the way, polarization as profound, more profound in some ways than polarization today, if that's understood as ideological polarization, despite that, senators had much more of a sense that the Senate was something that they cared about even more than their political party. The late Senator Bird from Robert Byrd from West Virginia was really the last senator to often articulate that. He would often oppose policies that he agreed with by a president of his own party because the president was running a thwart of some Senate uh, rule or tradition or process or something like that. That's gone now. And so what you call polarization, I, I think, is actually a byproduct of what Mann and Ornstein call hyperpartisanship. What hyperpartisanship is that makes it slightly different than just polarization is it's a party that's willing to oppose the other party even on issues that it agrees with. So even if you take a policy position or put forward a piece of legislation that the other party had originally proposed, you oppose it because you don't want the president of the party opposite or the party opposite to get credit for it. That's uh, a largely Republican phenomena. Uh, not exclusively, but largely Republican phenomena. And that notion of hyperpartisanship has been much, much more 
uh, damaging than simply disagreeing about policy or ideology. Jeffrey Toulis, thank you very much. Thank you. I want to make a point here just as we come to the end that I was thinking about watching some of the Love Parnas interview with Maddow and, and, and seeing the documents he brought out and thinking about Bolton. I was on Twitter that night um, for my sins, and I was seeing people just say over and over and over again, this is so damning. What we are learning here is so damning. And that was true. The Parnas interview is very damning. And if you believe Parnas, and at least some of it seems backed up by documentary evidence, we know that the president knew about all this. It was happening at his behest. And yet there's a way in which this whole process has slipped the bounds of truth and fact-finding. It's not that we needed more damning indictment or testimony or evidence. We had a lot of very damning evidence, some of it coming from President Trump himself, what he said in that call record, what he said on national television asking Ukraine and China to investigate the Bidens. We do not lack for damning evidence. What we have at least potentially lacked for are Republican members of Congress who care enough about the country and the constitutional order to do the right thing with the evidence we have. I think there's a real question as to whether there's any evidentiary record or revelation at this point that would change the underlying politics about this. I, I don't want to believe there isn't, but I kind of believe there isn't. I always want to be careful not to tip into nihilism here. If nothing else, and I, I want to say this very clearly because I think it's actually pretty important. If nothing else, what this impeachment process has done, it has let us know what happened. More and more every week, we know the a fuller picture of what President Trump was trying to do here. And whatever we do at this moment in our politics, whatever the Senate does in the coming weeks, this is something that we will know as a country in the future when some of the passions of this moment have subsided. And we can look back and say, this is what happened. And depending on how things go in the Senate trial, this is what we permitted, at least this is what one of the parties permitted. I talked with Professor Toulis about whether or not we are seeing that we actually just need different constitutional structures in order to continue having something close to the constitutional order and approach the founders wanted, and at least knowing what it is that Senate Republicans are going to protect Trump on, that at least helps us make those decisions in the future. Uh, so I don't want to be too grim here at the end, but I, I, I do want to ask this question and at least leave it ringing in, in people's ears, which is, what if the evidence doesn't matter? What if there is no amount of evidence that would overcome the partisanship of this process for Republicans? What if we are not dealing with anything like a trial? We are just dealing with a formality. And if so, what does that change in how this should be understood going forward? And to me, it doesn't make this process in any way useless. In some ways, it makes it all the more important. Because if we're ever going to fix a system, knowing the full extent of its rot— and its corruption, and its immovability, even in the face of this level of damning testimony, is going to be important for the people who come after us and have to deal with the wreckage that they have been left. That is Impeachment Explained. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you to, of course, Andrew Prokop and Jeffrey Toulis, to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Impeachment Explained is Vox Media podcast production.